Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our Juventus review episode, and I have a couple of guests to help me with this review. But before I introduce them, I want to start by recounting the events that ensued in the 36 hours leading up to this match. There was a lot of misreporting. There was a lot of speculation going on. No one really seemed to know the rules. So to start, Italy is currently going through another wave of COVID with the Omicron variant. On January 4th, they had 171,000 new cases. On the 5th, they went up to 189,000 cases. And on the 6th, which was the day of this match, they had 219,000 cases. The trend in Campania has been pretty similar. On the 4th, there were 12,000 new cases. On the 5th, there were 17,000 cases. And on the 6th, there were 16,500. The cases among Serie A players have continuously grown since the start of the new year. On the 4th, there were 72 positive cases across the league. Then it went up to 74 cases on the 5th, and I believe 72 again on the 6th. Heading into this round, the hardest hit clubs were Salernitana with 9 cases, Hellas Verona with 8, Bologna with 8, Udinese with 7, Napoli with 6 players plus Luciano Spalletti, and Torino with 6. Bologna, Torino, Salernitana, and Udinese were all ordered by their local health authorities to quarantine, so none of them were able to play their matches against Inter, Atalanta, Venezia, and Fiorentina respectively. Curiously, that did not happen with Napoli or Hellas Verona. Each city has its own ASL or local health authority, and the cities have multiple ASLs. In Napoli, the ASL Napoli Uno is responsible for the central districts. 
ASL Napoli 2 is responsible for the North Districts, and ASL Napoli 3 is responsible for the South Districts. Now, on Wednesday, the ASL Napoli Uno issued a statement saying that the positive players would have to self-isolate. That's pretty standard. And that the players who have been in contact with someone who's tested positive would have to quarantine in accordance with the Ministry of Health Circular 60136 dated December 30th, 2021. Now, that circular changed the rules around quarantine based on the latest research on Omicron and the rollout of booster shots and so on. I won't read the whole circular, but if you want that, send me a DM and I'll send you the link. But regarding close contact with someone who has tested positive, say Luciano Spalletti, there are three sections. First, for those who are vaccinated, you must be quarantined for 10 days. As far as I'm aware, everyone on the team has had at least two doses. If they haven't, they will be soon because there's a new law in Italy that says you must be vaccinated if you want to play football. So we're seeing some of those players like Chris Smalling, I believe, run to get their vaccinations now. The second section says that for those who are vaccinated but haven't had a booster shot or recovered from the virus in the last 120 days, you have to quarantine for five days. And then the third section says that for those who have had a booster shot or had the second shot within the last 120 days or recently recovered from COVID, then you don't have to quarantine at all. So to say follow the rules described in this circular is very different from ordering an entire team to quarantine like we saw with the other ASLs, which would in effect block travel, even though most of those teams were the home teams anyways. So in the late afternoon on Wednesday, the team heads over to the airport and boards a plane to go to Torino, expecting to play this match. Then shortly after that, the ASL Napoli Due indicated that three players, Amir Rachmani, Stanislav Lobotka, and Piotr Zelinski, would have to quarantine for five days. Mind you, these three players were already on the plane at this point. Most people deduced that they were in that second category of people who had close contact but had not received a booster shot or recently recovered from COVID, etc. So naturally, Napoli fans assumed that those three players would have to miss this match, along with all the other players who were out due to suspension, injury, COVID, and AFCON. But on a Wednesday evening, Gianluca Di Marzio clarified that those three players would be allowed to play so long as they self-isolated and did not have any quote-unquote civil contact. Then we learned that there was an emergency Lega Council meeting, and we all thought, okay, sensible heads will prevail and they'll postpone the entire round, because it was getting pretty ridiculous. Like, 72 players across the league is a lot of players. But this is Lega Serie after all, and there's very little sense in anything that they do. Reports quickly surfaced that they all decided in this emergency meeting that the round would proceed as planned. So I don't know what the point of the meeting was. In fact, on the 6th, which was the morning of the match day, they released a document entitled Rules Relating to COVID-19 Impact, Management of Positive Cases, and Postponement of Matches, which are supposed to apply for the balance of the current season, but who knows, maybe they'll keep doing this as the season goes on. We don't really know with the league. The key takeaways from this document, which was just over a page long, was that if a team can assemble a squad of 13 players, including a goalkeeper, from their first team and or from the 18-year-olds or older on their Primavera team, then they must play. And if they don't play, the club will suffer a 3-0 loss at the table. Of course, 
we know that all of those teams who were ordered to quarantine by their local health authorities will appeal and they'll probably have their matches rescheduled because Napoli set a precedent for that last season with our match against Juventus. That morning, there was also a quote from the director of the Torino ASL, Carlo Pico, who said, in his opinion, the three players should have had to quarantine based on that same circular that the ASL Napoli Uno referenced. Now, I don't know if that's the same person or if it's even the same ASL that ordered the entire Torino squad to quarantine, but that certainly caused some Napoli fans to be suspicious that the Torino ASL is suggesting that three of Napoli's key players shouldn't play in this match. In the end, all three of them did play, and I wasted a lot of time and energy tracking all of this stuff on Wednesday and Thursday. We believe the reason why they were allowed to play is because the circular referenced by the ASLs in Napoli and Torino does not come into effect until January the 10th. So with that, let me finally introduce our guest after that really long-winded explanation of all the crap that happened over the last 36 hours or 36 hours before the match. I'll start with a guest who's making his debut on the podcast, but he's certainly no stranger to Napoli Twitter and Instagram. Daniel DeLeo, welcome to Forza Napoli. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. Been a big fan of Joe for a while now. Excited (laughs) to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you. And for those who uh, are on cultural Twitter and don't recognize Daniel by his actual name, you might recognize him as Chopper Azzurro. We'll have to bring you back on for an episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide to get your uh, your story at some point. <laughs> Our second guest is making his second appearance on the show, and he is definitely a Napoli Twitter fan favorite, I would say. Francesco Valenti, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. All right, so the reason I went through that that whole recap of everything that happened, aside from just sort of trying to clear the air because there was a lot of different reports going around, it was all happening really quickly, it was hard to track, is I want to get your thoughts on all of that. Francesco, I'll start with you. What did you make of all of this drama leading up to the match? Uh, I mean, some of the things that were being said by Juventini were just so hypocritical and ironic in a way because last season it was corruption on Napoli and ADL and they're in cahoots together because we wanted the match to be rescheduled later than October because of all the COVID cases and whatnot. And obviously they claimed we're afraid to play them depleted. But then this season, the ASL of Torino says, Oh, Ratmani, Lobotka and Dielinski can't play rules are rules. And then you know, get mad at us when we can't believe that the ASL is ruling that after they already tested negative, boarded a bus and a plane. Whether it was the ASL of Napoli that really dropped the ball or ASL of Torino that were kind of dropping the ball with their um, decision to not allow them to play right before the match. It's on one of them, but it just was kind of ironic that Juventini were saying things like that when I don't know why we'd be afraid to play them. Keza and Dybala, they're two maybe biggest attacking threats are just coming off injuries and they're not going to be a hundred percent and they're missing some key players in the back line as well. They're not strong even when they're a hundred percent like they have been in the past. So I don't know. I just, I don't understand that whole conspiracy theory that we're trying to avoid playing them or with COVID and whatnot. So I thought that was ridiculous. And also we have to shout out the ridiculousness of the league as a whole once again, for having an emergency meeting, in quotes, 
and deciding to do nothing. If I were the league, I probably would have just suspended this midweek fixture and probably the weekend as well, and maybe just resumed with Coppa Italia next week. But um, yeah, they decided to go ahead, and none of us were surprised. We shouldn't be at this point. Yeah, exactly. On the Juventus piece with Juventini, I had a lot of arguments with Juventus fans last season, as much as, I mean, I don't argue with many people in general, but for me, let's say. And I couldn't believe how many people were basically saying De Laurentiis is guilty until proven innocent. And and I'm talking about even some very, very reputable podcasters that everyone was just saying, ah, well, you know, it's De Laurentiis. He has a friend that works for the city. He's pulling the strings. And so it was a little bit surprising because now, you know, the tables are turned and I didn't see that many people saying, oh, this is Allegri pulling the strings with the Torino ASL. So it did feel like there was a bit of a double standard there. On the league, I mean, this is typical Serie A. This is typical Italy in general, Italian politics. Everything is always so disorganized. Everything is last minute. There shouldn't have even been a need for a last minute emergency meeting because this is nothing new. We've been in dealing with COVID for a couple of years now, you would think they would have a, a backup plan in case something like this happened and that they would be thinking ahead as, you know, as there's variants and things like that and vaccines being rolled out, how that affects the protocols. I think Beppe Marotta, who said on behalf of the league, and I should note that all 20 clubs signed off on these regulations. So it's not like this is just the league officials making this decision. It was all the presidents as well, or their representatives, even though some of them still complained about it afterwards. But he later said that we were a little bit unprepared for this, which is you know ridiculous to, to think, how could you be so unprepared? Dan, what were your thoughts on, on all of this as it was playing out? For me, with the whole ASL thing, like as we're landing in Turin that three of our guys can't play, for me, I think the league looks bad there because how are you going to let the ASL have more power than you? You're supposed to be the one enforcing the rules unless they're working with the ASL. And I don't know, it just seems like all out of whack to me. And in terms of playing the games and then rescheduling or postponing with the amount of cases we had, that there was no clarity about the situation going into the game. Like the league needs to make a decision. Either every game is played or every game is not played. I think it's just poor, not professional from the league. Yeah, I agree completely. I think I think it's on both. It's on the league. It's on the ASLs. I mean, it, it's clear to me that the ASLs, they all operate independently. And I don't know how much communication there is between them. Like when I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to look up the zones that each one covers and each one of them has a completely different website. Some of them have maps. Some of them don't. Some of them just list the districts. In terms of who should have the final say, I do think it should be the health authorities. They're the experts. They have you know epidemiologists and all these people. It would be scary if we allowed the league to trump the ASLs, but they should also be working together, right? They should have met sooner and prepared something in advance so that they know how to deal with a situation like this. So Big mess, but unfortunately not something that's terribly surprising with Legacetia. Yeah. Now, even with Rachmani, Lobotka, and Zielinski in this squad, we were still depleted. Of course, Kulibali and Gisa Nunas were all off at AFCON 
Fabian and Osman are injured. Osman also has COVID along with Spalletti, as I've mentioned, Alex Moret, Kevin Malqui, Mario Rui, and Chucky Lozano. There was some confusion about Eli Felmas. He tested negative on Wednesday. Then he tested positive again on Thursday morning, but that must have been a false positive because he tested negative again in the final swab before the match. So he ended up getting into the squad, but we still had to resort to the Primavera to complete our squad. We called up goalkeeper Hubert Dasiak, center back Davide Costanzo, fullback Jonathan Spadalieri, and midfielder Antonio Vergara. Francesco, I don't think any of us were expecting too much heading into this match. For some fans, we just didn't want to get embarrassed. So you must have been happy with a draw, I would say. Oh, for sure. I thought that if we weren't going to be allowed to run with Zielinski, Ratmani, and Lobotka, we would have had no chance of a result at all. At that point, I would have definitely taken a draw. Given the circumstances and given how we played, I would say that a draw was pretty merited. It was pretty even. I would say maybe slight advantage to us in each half based on who outplayed who. But if we were full strength, it must be said, uh, even if they were at full strength, because the first time we played each other this season, both teams were more or less full strength. And yeah, the score ended two to one in favor of us, but we completely, in my opinion, we played them off the park. And yesterday, I think we would have done the same exact thing had we been full strength. So it's kind of a shame in that sense that potentially we could have gotten three points there, but Given the performance and circumstances, the draw was good. I don't know if I would agree that they were at full strength in the first meeting because that was the one where none of their South American players played because they went to play in qualifiers for Copa America, I believe it was. So they were missing quite a few players. I think Keza was kept out, Dybala, Cuadrado. Although a lot of those players were available, but the club elected to keep them out, which is a little bit different. That wasn't our situation. It's not that we had players that we didn't want to take a chance on. They were just not available. Like Chiesa was one of those players, I believe, where the club just for preventative reasons didn't field him. Then I'm guessing you were happy with this result as well? Honestly, yeah, I was pretty happy with the result. Once we took the lead, though, it looked like we could have added more, but definitely saw some positive signs in that performance but overall yeah happy with the draw Kaza looked dangerous from the start I'm surprised he didn't finish the job on us in the first half he had a lot of chances he looked scary sometimes a silly giveaway their counterattacks just it's kind of frightening when you don't have a full strength back line but we managed to not concede many goals with this new pairing in the back and uh it's not bad yeah, we'll talk about the backline a little bit. I agree, Chiesa was definitely Juve's best player. In a way, we were still a little bit fortunate that this was his first game back from an injury, so he didn't play the full 90 minutes. He played a good amount of time, and he definitely seemed like the most likely player to score for Juventus. From my perspective, I don't think we could have asked for a whole lot more. Obviously, a win would have been great, and the way we played, it wouldn't have been unheard of if we did win, but... Again, looking at the squads before the match, really all I wanted to see was our players leave it out there on the field, and I think they did that. In fact, I think they did more than that. I think on the whole, Juve were the more likely side to win. They had the better XG at 1.3 compared to our 0.7, but we had more possession. That's pretty common for Juventus's opponents, the way they play. But either way, I was happy to see that once again, we played our game. We play the same way, regardless of who's in the squad, because we have an identity. 
we only used two substitutions and one of those changes was in the 89th minute. So 10 of the 11 players basically played the entire match. I mentioned Elmas recovering from COVID. It was clear to me that he wasn't at a hundred percent. There was one play where Patania played the ball out wide to him near the touchline and he just didn't get there. And it looked like the type of play that a healthy fit Elmas probably would have got into that ball. So I think he was struggling. And again, he just tested negative the day before the match. So there, you couldn't really expect too much from him. And on top of that, we had to play him on the right wing as we've already played him pretty much everywhere else on the park. So I guess why not play him at the right wing, which is where he hasn't played yet this season. The final substitution was on only for Lobotka and stoppage time. So that almost doesn't count either. Then you look at Juve and their substitutes, which were Dybala for Bernardeschi, Bentancur for Rabiot, Shilio for Alexandro, who, okay, fine, is not that great, Moise Kane for Alvaro Morata, and Dejan Kulusevski for Federico Chiesa. So that's four quality players coming off the bench, at least four, again, if you don't count Shilio. Clearly, they had a deeper squad for this match, which is why it was so frustrating to see so many Juventus fans insisting that this match should be played because they had injuries and COVID too. Like, okay, yes, they were missing Bonucci and Chiellini, but at his age and with the licked in the squad, Chiellini only plays about half of their games anyways. It's not it's not like the old Chiellini that was playing every game. Likewise, you know, all of a sudden, Juventini are acting like Luca Pellegrini is such a great player because he, you know, he played the last couple of matches and he's been better than Alexandro. But let's not act like losing Luca Pellegrini is as big of a loss as some of the players that we were playing without. I mean, we were probably playing again with without six starters in the squad. Likewise, Aaron Ramsey never plays. So really, the only key players that they were missing were Bonucci and Danilo. That's also why it was frustrating to hear Max Allegri say in his post-match that Napoli had four players missing while Juve were missing six players in the first meeting because that simply wasn't true. I don't know where he's getting his information from. So I think to pick up the draw... In Torino, playing with no manager and a decimated squad, I was quite content. It's very satisfying to know that Juventus picked up only one point in two matches against us this season, which means that we own the tiebreaker, which could be important come the end of the season. So that'll do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about the goals and the penalty calls that weren't called. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. So let's talk about the goals next. Dries Mertens opened the scoring in the 23rd minute. Dan, I'll come to you first. What did you think of this goal? Great finish by Mertens. Insigne's ball, like I saw him trying that ball a little bit during the game. It just wasn't clicking for him, but Politano with a great touch. Bodied the defender. Good shield on the ball. Easy layoff for Mertens and... uh It was a great finish, honestly. I thought it was going to get cleared off the line. That was Merton's seventh goal in all competitions, his 142nd for Napoli. So he just keeps extending his record as Napoli's top goal scorer of all time and his third goal in 15 appearances against Juventus. Francesco, what did you think of the goal? Just basically going to add what Dan already alluded to. I thought the diagonal ball by Insigne was pretty nice. Politano dealt with it on a one-hop with a pretty nice touch. Laid it off to Cheeto, and then he took the touch, which showed he kept his composure. And even though it cut his angle off and made it smaller, he doesn't care. He's just still so lethal at his age that he still nailed the bottom corner. I think that it would have actually been cleared off the line had Chesney not got a touch on it before it reached the licked. 
But again, Meredith Ends is one of those guys. He's just got the hot hand. When he gets in those like tight areas, he's such a tricky little player that he'll just find a way. But again, Insigne, like many other times yesterday, in my opinion, when he's on the ball, the game has so much potential to be unlocked in a second with one pass, one split decision that he makes. I think it's going to be definitely realistic for us to replace him ability-wise, but it'll take a little bit of time. And I think yesterday definitely was an example of that. Yeah, we'll talk more about Insignia in part three, but this was another goal where we completed a number of passes in the buildup. I think I counted around 14 or 15 passes, eight different outfield players touching the ball at least once during the play. Fans of other clubs love to tease Napoli for having short players, but three of them combined to score on this goal. You had, as you guys said, Insignia with the lovely ball. He cut in from the wing, which was something we saw a lot of in this match. Politano, who I think wasn't very good in this match, made an excellent play. Like Daniel said, he he took the ball down well. He made a nice little layoff to Mertens. And then Mertens did what you would expect from a natural goal scorer. First, he read the play and put himself in a position to receive that layoff and, and to take the shot. As you said, uh, Francesco, he was calm on the ball. He took a touch to his right, which may have decreased the angle, but he sent uh, Alexandro to the moon a little bit. He was dizzy after that little touch. And then he beat Chesney. And, and as we said, we were, yeah, we were a little bit fortunate because I think the Licht would have cleared that ball off the line had it not taken that slight touch. But, you know, the same thing happened on the Juventus goal. So let's talk about that one next. Federico Chiesa scored that goal in the 54th minute. Francesco, what did you think of the equalizer? Unlucky with a deflection, but definitely deserved from the individual aspect. Chiesa definitely deserved a goal yesterday. He was by far Juve's best attacker, player overall, most threatening. So he deserved the goal. Romani, I believe, was the one that headed it. And unfortunately, it was kind of right up the middle to no man's land. And that could happen, you know? When you're in your own half and you're that deep and you give the ball away right outside your penalty area, it's never a great thing with Chiesa running at the goal. And a goal can definitely happen from it, and that's what happened. And just like ours, you know, deflected in, you may get a deflection too, which to me kind of just symbolizes how much this game should have ended in a draw and how it justifies it. But, yeah, you know, he deserved it, so nothing really against him there. Yeah, Dan, you want to add anything? Yeah, so obviously like unlucky with the header out. I feel like this happens to us a lot where failure to clear the ball properly, silly, silly goal. But also I saw that there could have been a handball or a foul in the buildup from Bernadeschi. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was either he took it down with his hand or while he took it down, he just shoved, like he pushed uh, Deme in the back. Of course, that wasn't looked at though, so... The goal was given, but I think there was a chance for it to be called back there. The deflections are killing us, but they deserved at least one. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that foul or potential foul that wasn't given, but a couple of observations from me on this goal. I think it started with Quadrado playing a long ball to Weston McKenney, and I don't want to be too hard on any of our players really given the circumstances, but I think there are a few things that are worth pointing out one was that I thought Juan Jesus was a little bit slow to chase that ball down or maybe a better way to put it is if we had Koulibaly he probably gets to that ball first and 
they don't even get a chance out of it. Instead, McKenney gets there first, who's a quick player, don't get me wrong. Maybe he would have still beat Koulibaly to that ball, but I feel like that slight delay or that that lack of pace from Juan Jesus allowed McKenney to play the cross in. Francesco, you mentioned Rachmani's clearance. I'm going to give Alvaro Morata a little bit of credit there. He's not a guy that gets a lot of love from anyone, really, whether it's Juventini or Spain fans on international stage. But I think just fighting to win that header, he did just enough to kind of throw Rachmani's balance off. And because of that, he didn't get as much on the header as he would have liked to. And that's why it fell for Keza at the top of the box. And then I agree with both of you. It was a very similar type of finish to Mertens where he made a great first touch, except he set it up on his his weaker foot. But Keza's very good on both feet with shooting. It took the deflection off Lobotka. And that slight deflection, just like with Chesney's deflection, was enough for that ball to get past Ospina. I'm not a goalkeeping expert by any stretch, and I don't want to be too critical of Ospina either because he's been very good for us as well. But I thought he set up a little bit too much on the right side of the goal, and perhaps that's why he didn't get to that ball. But that said, the ball ended up in the side netting. So even if he was better positioned, I'm not sure that he gets there anyways. Maybe he does, but typically when when you have a deflection, you generally don't blame the goalkeeper. Dan, you mentioned the possible foul by Bernardeschi. You're right. It looked like there could have been a handball on either player. It looked like it could have been a foul by Bernardeschi on Deme. He went to the ground. Francesco, do you think there was a foul there? This one was kind of tough for me. Was the argument that Bernardeschi's elbow was raised and hit Deme in the face? I think that was the argument for the foul. I don't know, really. It just looked like they collided and... Then it went down. So yeah, certainly from a Napoli perspective, everyone's going to say, oh, that should have been a foul, right? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't upset about this one as much as the non-penalty call. But this one as a no call, I was okay with. I I thought it was kind of a 50-50. And when you put everything in slow motion, it always looks worse. And Ben Ardeski, you know, he's running at Deme and he kind of like leaps. And he's got so much momentum that it just looks worse. But there was really nothing malicious about it, in my opinion. So for me, the non-call was okay. Yeah, I was okay with it as well. I mean, it is a contact sport as much as it's becoming a non-contact sport with the way the game is officiated these days. But the reason I was okay with it was because it was pretty consistent with how Simona Sosa called this entire match. He was allowing them to play. Like We saw Juan Jesus make a couple of tackles that... I couldn't believe were not called as fouls, where he was just plowing through Bernardeschi or whoever. VAR did look at the play. We saw Sosa wait for a minute before he started the play again. So I guess if we want to blame anyone, we should blame Massimiliano Irati on the VAR. I also think Deme didn't help his own cause by hopping right back up to his feet when he didn't get the call, which is ironic because normally when players roll around pretending to be in pain, it's pretty annoying and Usually they're just wasting time, but I wonder if maybe when they looked at it, they realized, okay, well, if he just hopped up like that, he he wasn't in that much pain. I want to close part two by talking about those penalties, including the one that Francesco just referenced. But first, the first non-call was about five minutes before the break. Rachmani fouled Morata about 35 yards from the goal. Quadrado went for a direct shot, and Mertens appeared to block the shot with his arm. Francesco, do you think we got away with one there? 
I thought that on the replay that I saw that I think I think Phil might have retweeted it and it was from behind the goal. It looked like he hit it with his thigh. I blocked the shot with his thigh or another part of his body and then it hit onto his left arm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that if the ball hits another body part before the hand or the arm, then it's not a handball because it's not hitting it directly. Yeah, it could be. To be honest, the rule changes so much that I've kind of lost track of exactly what it is. I think you're right. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, no, I agree with Francesco. I think that rule should still be in order, and I guess it is because there was no call. But it's also difficult when the shot's coming at you. Like, you don't know where it's going to hit. It's hard to keep it in natural position all the time, but maybe we did get away with one there. Yeah, the other thing, too, that's important to remember is that there needs to be a clear and obvious error. And, you know, as much as you want to slow down and look at different angles, I didn't see enough to prove that the ball did in fact hit his arm. I watched the games on the zone and they have ex-official Luca Marelli as their officiating expert. And his opinion was that the penalty should have been awarded because his arm was away from his body. So obviously he's assuming the ball hit his arm. They also had ex-Napoli and Juve player Chiro Ferrara on for this match, and Chiro was a defender, so naturally he felt it was not a penalty. Chiro's argument was that Mertens had his arm out to defend Morata, so his arm was not in an unnatural position when the ball hit it, if it did hit it. As a defender, I can sympathize with him. I think the league is making it more and more difficult to defend these days, and The only thing I disagree with regarding Ferrada's assessment is that he said it wasn't intentional, but as I've said many times on this podcast, intent doesn't really matter. Now, Napoli fans wanted a penalty called in the second half, and this is the one that Francesco was alluding to earlier. This was in the 83rd minute after Di Lorenzo won a free kick in the Juve half. Gulam played across into the area. The ball bounced around a little bit before it fell to Di Lorenzo. The Ligt cleared the danger, but he appeared to catch Di Lorenzo in the process. Dan, I'll come to you first on this one. Do you think that should have been a penalty? Personally, I saw the replay a couple times, and I don't think it should have been a penalty. So, yeah, the contact's there all day. But like you said, the sport's becoming a non-contact sport. Like, I think it was a little little too soft for Di Lorenzo to go down. I mean, if I'm Di Lorenzo, I'm going down too, just to see. But, like, I wouldn't expect to get the call in that position. Okay, and what do you think, Francesco? I do definitely agree with Dan in the sense that if they did give it, it may have been a soft call. But the thing that's just annoying is the consistency across the league that we see some penalties given in some matches that are super soft, and then another match it'll be the same you know level of softness, but it won't be given. And I get it's subjective based on the referee that day, the individual, and how they assess the play, but... After the match, we're questioning why didn't they look at it on VAR and Juventini are, you know, saying it wasn't a penalty. Like, why would you guys even think that it's going to be given or whatever? Why are you guys looking for that call or whatever? But I guess they're quick to forget the penalty that they got against Inter when Dumfries tapped Sandro, both extending for the ball. In my opinion, like, that was a soft penalty because, yeah, there was contact. But, I mean, really? Like, that, there was there was really not much in that. And... For a game of that magnitude to be decided based on that, or just for that to take part in a game of that magnitude, I should say, is just kind of unacceptable. And based on that being a penalty, I just don't understand how they can't understand how we think that 
this should have been looked at again by VAR. But at the end of the day, yeah, it would have been soft. But in my opinion, if you go through the back of somebody in the box and it causes them to go down, no matter you know how hard it may be, he's in the box, so his back's the goal. So he's threatening by effectively laying the ball off to somebody else running in or possibly turning the defender and taking a shot on himself. So you kind of have to look at it in that sense and say, oh, what could potentially happen if DiLorenzo stays on his feet here? And if you go through the back of somebody without getting any of the ball, I mean, there's always a shout, in my opinion. So I just wish they would have looked at it mainly. And number two, I just really don't understand how other fans can't see how we're arguing that it's a penalty. It just bewilders me. Yeah, that's really well said. And I was going to use the exact same example with the Dumfries foul on Alexandro. That game, that penalty was awarded, I think, in the 89th minute or was converted by Dybala in the 89th minute. That match finishes 1-1, so Juve get a draw. This time, the penalty was not given, so we did not take the lead. And the match finishes 1-1, so Juve get a draw. So it seems like you talk about consistency. They came out on top in both of those cases, which uh, is problematic in terms of the league. It would have been something else to see Lorenzo Insigne take yet another penalty kick against Juventus in what might have been his final Serie A match against Juventus. We'll talk more about Insigne and some other standout players in Part 3. Welcome to part three of the Fortunopoli podcast. So I want to talk about some individual performances, and I think we have to start with Lorenzo Insigne. All eyes were on him with the reports that he signed for Toronto FC. Francesco, what did you make of Insigne's performance? I thought Insigne actually put in a pretty solid shift yesterday. At times, he was tracking back, working hard. In my opinion, definitely showed his leadership. And hunger, desire to get a positive result in potentially his last big match against Juventus in his Napoli career. So I think he definitely wanted it. And to achieve that as captain away, which we never really get results there with a depleted squad, would have been a nice send-off for him. So I think that really drove him. But, you know, at times in tight spaces along that left side that he was working with Gulam. Just the little passes that he'll find in between two or three players, even if it seems simple, he'll find Demi or Laboka through a small hole rather than lay it back to an outside back or a center back. So he'll find that center mid and off we go. It just potentially starts attacking threats through buildup rather than going back and resetting. And at times, yes, he was calling for calm and for the reset, but there are times when you don't think it's possible that he's going to find the center mid or you don't think he's going to. And he does, and he makes it look so easy and he's so nonchalant about it at times. And I think that we're really going to miss that because some of the traits of Insigne and his play style as a left winger, he's not the best in the world by any means, but he's very unique in my opinion, in comparison to other wingers. He was cutting it on his right a lot. Some of his shots were definitely wild. And I think Raf Bizzotto has actually mentioned this on the Raf and Rafret that this season Insigne has been shooting a lot less frequently because we saw last year he took a lot of shots, but his conversion rate wasn't great. So maybe the strength of his game is, you know, the dribble and beating defenders and passing the ball on those diagonal crosses or sending guys through or over the tops or what have you. 
So I thought yesterday was kind of proof of that, whereas his range shooting just wasn't so great. But as far as tracking back and being intelligent, I thought he he influenced the game. Once again, was an architect to a lot of the attack as well. So Insigne for me played played great. Yeah, we all know what a psychological player he is, and I think he just needs to get that one goal from open play, and that'll make him more confident, and then I think he'll start hitting the target more, and those goals will start to flow a little bit more. Dan, what did you think of Insigne's performance? I actually, I liked Insigne yesterday. I don't think he was bad at all. Like Francesco said, off the ball, he was great. His movement was pretty excellent. He was always looking to find that interception, always reaching his leg out to try to block the pass. So I love that from him. Saw the emotion when we scored. Looked great, like very, very into the game. Didn't seem like he just signed a contract somewhere else. He's always looking for that last pass, which we always, I feel like, mess up in the final third. That killer pass. And he did create a lot of chances. We did mess up a few, but he did create the goal that we did score to draw the game. But one thing I didn't like about Insigne yesterday had nothing to do with his play. But within the first five minutes of the game, he looked like really just like he was there to have fun, which is great. But like then he high, he went over high five, gave a little hug to Max Allegri, which I just I don't think it's fitting for the setting of the game. We hate Juventus. They're on our tail. Like you got to make it seem like it's business. But otherwise, I thought he was great. Slow down the play a lot, but understandable with his age. He's not the same fast, direct guy who's going to run out his defender. But I thought he was smart overall, yeah. I actually wanted to ask you, Joe, about that 2v1 that Insigne had the chance to play Mertens in, I think it was. It was either Mertens or Politano. But in lifetime, actually, I thought that the pass was kind of difficult and may have gotten cut off because to play him onside there, either around the defender or in between the two defenders – I think might have been difficult. He might have underhit him or he might have just mistimed it and which Mertens would have been off. And he actually cut back uh, and slowed the whole play down. I kind of just was curious what you thought of that play and if you think he should have been more direct there or if it was understandable to cut back and slow it down. So it's funny because you guys both mentioned the part about slowing down. I didn't have a problem with it only because while I appreciate, yes, maybe we can be more direct there and create a better chance and, Maybe that wasn't the best decision in that particular case, but I think, and maybe this was a little bit of Gattuso still, you know, his voice still in in, in Insigne's head, but sometimes it is good to just reset, slow things down. We're very much a team now that builds up towards goals. We don't score as many counterattacking goals, especially when Osiman is not in the squad, right? So I have no problem with just collecting ourselves, getting set up, and then playing our game and passing the ball around and creating chances that way. Unfortunately, with the squad that we had as the match wore on, it became harder and harder to create chances because guys were starting to get tired. It's funny, though, that you mentioned Ralph Bizzato because the Biz, he was on cultural connection with Alex Dono and Jerry Mancini, and I thought he made a great point, which is that this team does not look the same when Insigne is not in the squad. And we've had plenty of debates about Politano and Lozano and even Unas. And the reality is Insigne is still the best winger on this team. And I think part of the reason why he's so important is because he's not just a goal scorer. He is also a playmaker. And we saw that obviously on the goal, like you guys mentioned, 
I think part of the game plan for Insignia this match was for him to almost play like another attacking midfielder. We saw him constantly cutting into the center of the park and kind of hanging around in the middle of the field. And I wonder if that was because we were forced to start Diego Deme and Stanislav Vodka in the double pivot, really because we had nobody else. But they're very similar players, and neither of them are particularly attack-minded. Typically, we pair one of them, or Anguissa, with Fabian. And Fabian likes to shoot, or at least he looks for the shot on occasion when he's got that sweet spot at the top of the box. So I think the idea there was for Insigne to be that extra attacking midfielder in a way. And like you said, Francesco, he did look for the shot. They just they didn't come off like has been the case really throughout this season. The other thing is Insigne and Gulam have played together, but it's been years, right? Like Gulam hasn't played, hasn't started a match in who knows how long. He played well enough, but I think, again, there's a different dynamic when Mario Rui and Insigne are playing together. They have that better chemistry. You know Mario Rui is going to get forward a lot. You know he's going to overlap, and, and that creates different opportunities. It opens up the space a little bit. I'll keep this very open and throw the ball over to you guys and ask, you know, were there any other players that stood out to you in this match? Dan, I'll start with you. All right, so you talked about the double pivot with Demian Lobotka. I thought they were great as a pair, especially, like you said, when we slow the ball down and we get the guys forward, whether it be our wingbacks coming up, pushing up forward to attack, we look much better nowadays when we have all bodies forward in the attack. It opens a lot of space created, um, especially with Demme and Loboka moving around. Like They're always looking to find like the opening in the pockets. Loboka I thought was great, very composed, tight dribbling, amazing from him. One thing I noticed about Demme, and we talked about how we're not like a counter-attacking team anymore and we're more like a slow build-up play. Every time we won the ball like outside our 18-yard box and we looked like we wanted to counter, you'd see Politano jetting down the wing. He's always down there waiting. And Deme would pick the ball up at the top of the 18 and he dribbles towards his right very slowly. It looks like his hips open to make the pass to Politano. He takes too many touches and then we're moving together. Like, I don't know if it's Spalletti's instruction, but maybe we can be good on the counter if we look to counter. But overall, I thought they held it down. In terms of possession, they kept the ball well. I also really liked Gulam's performance. Maybe not so much with the ball, but off the ball in the defense. I thought he was great, especially having only played, I think, 15 minutes all season. But it was a great game from him in his first start back. Yeah, Gulam... uh... For someone who hasn't played in a really long time, I think it was really nice just to see him play that many minutes. I think that's a really good sign. You know, he didn't didn't hurt anything. I was a little bit critical of him in the first half, and then I watched it again, and I kind of retracted my statements because I thought at least the first, you know, for the first 10, 15 minutes, we were on our back heels, and we looked pretty vulnerable to the pace that Juventus had, and they seemed to be getting in between the lines, especially Chiesa. But that back four really settled down. I do think, again, that as great as Lobotka and Deme both were in this match, especially Lobotka, like, he always seems to be in the right place. And we talk about some of those tight passes that Francesco mentioned that Insigne makes. You can only make those passes if the player is showing for the ball. And it was more often than not, it was Lobotka that was showing for that ball. Deme made really a game-saving touch in the second half when... This was, I think, the counterattack that started with that non-call on Di Lorenzo. And 
Delic plays the ball long to Dybala. They have a bit of a break. He crosses it, and Kane is wide open in front of the goal. And at the last second, Demet got a, a sort of a backheel touch on the ball, and it was just enough for it to get out of the path of Kane. So I think, in a way, he saved the match just with that touch alone. Francesco, who stood out to you in this match? Of course, shout out to Gulam, who's been hanging around for a long time, dealing with so many serious injuries. Both of his ACLs gone. I'm sorry to all of Napoli Twitter. I I don't know what this this comment might cause, but he's burned, man. He really is burnt. If we need him once in a while, sure. But to believe that he's going to make a comeback and, and get fit again, especially the way that we saw him before he went down against City a few years back, it's never going to happen. I don't see it happening. I noticed during the game yesterday, he'd start to get up the field. And right as he hit midfield, he was not making one deep run, whether it be an overlapping run or an underlapping run. He's not running in that deep area anymore. That's over. Uh, I couldn't believe he recovered on that one play in the first half, I think it was, where he got beat by Bernardeschi. And he still recovered to block the shot or cross attempt by Bernardeschi. That was incredible. But just overall, you know, respect to Gulam, but if we're being realistic, he's burnt. And um, yeah, I, I thought the double pivot played absolutely amazing. Couldn't really ask for more from them. Lobotka, once again, you know, even when Angisa comes back, I hope to see him getting a ton of playing time. He really deserves it. He's proven it time and time again. I think he had one poor league performance in the beginning of the season. Then he had a poor Europa League game, his first game back from the injury at Spartak. And ever since then, he's been very, very good. Very good. On the ball, very shifty, very agile. Was able to keep it in tight spaces under pressure. I thought Deme was definitely better off the ball than on the ball, I would say. As you alluded to, that game saving, you know, clearance off the line, which Insigne, I think, hacked out after, after Demi's touch. But Demi and Lebotka overall, they, they covered so much ground yesterday. And that always has to be respected because we asked for them to leave it all out there. And those guys really put in a shift and a half yesterday, which I can respect. And additionally, with so many guys out, I think in the second half, with Juve also sitting back so deep, it was tough to play vertical a lot of times for us. We were playing horizontal, playing ball retention, you know. And I think that the main concern for Demi and Lobotka was just to not lose the ball, especially knowing that this 11 predominantly has to go a full 90 here. How many times can we sprint back on a Juve counter? You know, not many times before we're burnt and we get beat and then lose all the points. So I think that the message to the team might have been, guys, let's play it safe. Like, yeah, we do want to go for the win, but we don't have the guys that, you know, we could take the risks and burn guys because we got subs to come off the bench later on in the game. So I think the main message to those guys was let's play some ball retention. If we have to play horizontal rather than vertical, let's play safe, keep the ball, try to burn them out, get them moving around. And if we can find that killer pass, okay, great, find it. But if not, just take care of the ball, which they did. So very, very solid performances from both of them. And another guy I want to shout out to is Di Lorenzo. I thought Di Lorenzo was absolutely fantastic yesterday. Had a couple blocks um, on some decently threatening shots, it seemed. It would have been if he had not blocked it. But Di Lorenzo, man, is I can't put it into words. He's an incredible outside back. Definitely, for me, top three in the league at right back. Possibly even top two. He put in a shift yesterday. 
And I guess lastly, uh, I'll add Mertens. I've said it time and time again, he still has it. There's just so many like little clever touches that you find him doing in matches, little clever passes, layoffs. And he's such a little tricky player, tricky little clever player. And at 34, 35 years old, he's still got it, and he's still such a threat. And it's it's really fun to watch. And I uh, love the passion from him on the goal. He's one of us. What more is there to say? I would yeah. add to what Francesco also said about Di Lorenzo. The guy runs on batteries. He doesn't get a break. He's been really consistent for us his whole time at our club. So, yeah, good shout-out to him. Mertens, I feel like every game you, you don't see the same Mertens. Like, you see a new trick that he's trying. Like, you saw he tried the one touch outside of the boot pass. It didn't connect, but he's always trying to, like, be cheeky. And, like, I feel like that's why part of the reason why he still has it is because the opponent doesn't know exactly what he's going to do when the ball's at his feet. So, yeah, he's definitely still a huge threat for us, and we'll see if he even if he considers renewing at the end of the season. Yeah, I think fans need to start mentally preparing for that because I think that's going to play out very similarly to the Insignia situation where unless Mertens is willing to take a significant pay cut, which he might be given his age compared to Insignia's, I think he's probably going to be on his way out. There's some rumors about a return to PSV. I think on Gulam, we're probably giving him some some extra points just because of how much he meant to us so many years ago. But I, I do agree with Francesco that I think he's not the player that he once was. I think he had a good match, don't get me wrong, but I think his time is limited as well. It's possible this was his last match for Napoli because... If I'm not mistaken, we would have to terminate a contract to be able to register Axel Twanzebe, who De Laurentiis tweeted his confirmation tweet on Friday. So if we had to terminate a player to be able to register Twanzebe, Gulam could well be that guy. So this might have been his last match for Napoli. We'll have to keep an eye out on that. On Rachmani and Di Lorenzo, they're becoming guys like Koulibaly where we almost don't give them enough credit just because how consistently well they play. I think Rachmani is becoming such a rock at the back, and I'm really excited for Kulibali to return because that is just a killer center-back pairing. I generally try to close the podcast on a positive, but today, unfortunately, we're going to close on a negative. In the 76th minute, the Licht played a long ball forward to Moise Kane, He chased the ball down to the corner of the field where the visitor's section is, and while they were there, you could hear monkey chants very distinctly. Now, as far as I'm aware, they haven't identified the person or persons yet. There's plenty of speculation about even who did it, but some Napoli fans are suggesting it was actually a Juventino doing it. I suppose that's possible, but given that where they were on the field, given that Kane, who's Italian, by the way, but he's of African descent, Given that he had the ball, it seems rather likely to me that these chants were coming from the visitor section. There's also speculation that it was an Napoli fan who is not a member of the Ultras, and I don't think the Ultras want to be associated with that. Francesco, what do you make of all this? Yeah, so at first, uh, I remember Carmine sent the video. I couldn't hear it at first, or I just couldn't make out what was happening. And then I think Luca sent the video a second time and it was very clear the second time that I saw the video it was very clear and I I thought you know Napoli Twitter was 
quick to respond to it and um, responded in the right way. I mean, you know how we all feel about that. We don't put up with that. We don't agree with that at all. And there's always going to be an ignorant individual in, in a bunch. And even though it's rare with our club, all bias aside, it is really rare with us. I don't really see that many incidents of racism on behalf of our fans, whether it's at an away game, a home game, whatever it may be. There's really not that many cases. But, you know, to say that there's none is obviously not realistic. There's definitely going to be fans a part of the Napoli fan base that are racist and have these these ignorant views on players of other of other cultures and races. And that's unfortunate and can't be allowed. So I don't think anything was official yet, but if they do obviously identify who that is, he should be fined and banned from entering the stadium again, which really is a shame. It's just not worth it, especially when you support a club that you love. I can't imagine doing something so stupid where now you're not even allowed to watch them in person anymore. And it's so beautiful to watch in person because the movement and the atmosphere and, and everything is just so different than TV. And when you're in, you know, the country that they play in and it's a lot more accessible for you to go watch beautiful football, what a stupid way to, to ruin that for yourself. But needs to be done if the uh, individual or individuals are identified. Yeah, and you're not just ruining it for yourself. You're ruining it for everybody else around you as well. Dan, what did you think of this? Of course, it's unacceptable no matter where it's coming from. And if it did come from a Napoli fan, then shame on them because if they are a true fan and they've seen the amount of racism that our players have put up with considering the the abundance of an African presence in our squad, they see how it affects our players. Koulibaly always posting about anti-racism and how it should be just banned at, at every stadium. Like, there should be no tolerance for it. But yeah... Francesco said it it is very rare to come from our fan base, but there's always someone to ruin it for everybody. But uh, they should be dealt with accordingly, and that would be being banned from coming to any any game in Serie A. Yeah, regardless of who did it, they need to catch the person and punish them appropriately. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Even banning them from matches is not enough for me anymore. I think they need to be charged, put them in jail for a week, a month. I don't care. Whatever it is. You have to punish them enough that it's going to stop them and it's going to stop other people from doing the same thing or at least make them think twice about doing it. I was happy to see that pretty much all Napoli fans on social media were condemning this behavior. It's certainly not something that we're used to, as you guys alluded to. Obviously, like Daniel said, we have a lot of African players on the squad and we have for a long time and we've supported our players when they were victims of racial abuse. So we definitely need to support our competitors players as well friend of the pod daniel bowen goes to many matches including many away matches because he lives in the north and he said he's never heard napoli fans making racist chants so i think like you guys said this is not something that that you typically see from napoli fans and it's not something that we want to become known for and that's usually not the case like you guys said it's usually one one or two people that ruin it for everyone else but we also have to not kid ourselves. And, you know, as welcoming of a place as Napoli is, especially to immigrants, there are racist people there, just like there are racist people in the rest of Italy and the racist people in the rest of the world. There just needs to be a collective effort and it needs to be taken seriously because that's really the only way that we're going to see any change. So that's all we have time for today. I want to thank both of our guests. Thank you, Daniel, so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Joe. It was a pleasure being here. The pleasure was all mine. Francesco, thank you as well. Thank you again, Joe. 
always enjoy being on here talking Napoli with you, and I look forward to it again in the future. Absolutely. You can find Daniel on Instagram at Danito underscore. You can find Francesco on Twitter at Partenopesce. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back very soon with a mini pod to preview the Sampdoria match on Sunday, and then we'll be back at it again next week to review that match. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.